Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me. I am here today with the lovely Sylvie Leotin. She has a background in engineering, business, and science, and is living with cancer, and she's going to tell us all about it. She's created a popular blog about the cancer patient experience. So, Sylvie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lauren. It's a pleasure to be here, and Seeing you in person. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I could not agree more. It's such a pleasure because we talked before we were able to record today and really had a lot to talk about. So I'm really excited to dig into more of that today. Likewise. Yeah. Well, of course. So why don't we start from the very beginning? Why don't you tell us when and how you first realized that you had something going on and how you addressed it? Oh, Yes, yeah, so actually, you know, before cancer, a year before cancer, I started to get really debilitating daily chronic migraines. And I was actually incapacitated for six months mm. um, until I got a diagnosis, which you know about. <laughs> and um, so when um, a year later, I got a biopsy that was very puzzling because it resulted in unknown results. Mm. So I was told that it was not cancer. It was not cancer, but it was not not cancer. (laughs) So that was very um, difficult to to handle. Uh, I ended up spending three years and having 20 major biopsies, more than 40 scans and 500 medical visits to finally get a cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, three years later in February of 2018. So what kind of cancer are we looking at here specifically for you? I have a uh, breast cancer. Breast cancer. So this is something we've talked about before on the show and, and one of the more commonly discussed forms of cancer. So what was it like going through this, this process where interestingly, as a woman, a woman of color, not being believed by your doctors. I mean, this is a familiar story we hear, but how did you finally get them to listen? And how did you know something was going on? Mm. Um, I think I just knew in my, in my bones, in my guts that we often do something was wrong. Yeah. It's just kind of too many things were just um, happening at the same time. I had uh, abnormal uh, blood test as well. Mm. And so I was also on the watch for uh, blood cancer. Um, and, you know, it's just very strange symptoms. Like I've never been sick my entire life. And then mm. suddenly all those things are, are happening at the same time. And did you have doctors saying to you that you were a hypochondriac, that you were making this up? Certainly with the migraines. <laughs> that took seeing a lot of doctors and, you know, and uh, yeah, I did experience um, people just... Um, like brushing you off? Yes. Mm. <laughs> but I kept, I kept at it. I kept looking and I spent, you know, I don't know, I must have seen 10 different oncologists, you know, so I really kept pushing Mm. um, to find it. And um, so I I did all sorts of alternative medicine and um, stress management and pain management uh, classes. And and, uh, that was helpful to some extent. But what really made a difference in my life was to learn 
um, believe it or not, hypnosis and meditation. Yeah. 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 So you yeah. learned those through someone who was obviously licensed like a, a therapist. Oh, yes, I actually learned this from the father of uh, hypnosis in, at Stanford, David Spiegel. Wow. Um, so I learned those techniques and then um, I joined a meditation center and I'm now a very experienced meditator. Mm. I fell in love with it as soon as I started it. it just, yeah. So has that been something that's helped you with day-to-day management? Oh, yes. I would not have been able to cope with my migraines first without that because it's, um, it's a form of migraine. It's called hemicrania continua. Mm-hmm. That's very rare. And half of my face is pretty much disabled. Like and a palsy kind of situation? Um. It was hard to kind of like understand, like, you know, I thought I had, I had a stroke when it first mm-hmm. happened because I had weakness on, on one side, but, um, none of the migraine medication works and none of the painkiller works. So, um, I just, I just had to do something and I found by, um, you know, I took the MBSR mindfulness based stress reduction class in the hospital first. And uh, that was helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then I took it actually a second time. <laughs> and then I went to uh, meditation and I learned to meditate without tapes and guidance and all of yeah. those things. And, um, and uh, started to increase my, you know, as my heart, as my life was getting harder and harder, I started to increase the amount of time I meditate every day. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That has really helped me. Uh, When uh, I got diagnosed with cancer, actually doubled my meditation time. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, Mm. That was really helpful. So aside from, I mean, it sounds like those are services that were readily available to you in the hospital and through your specialists. Is that right? Yes. I was very lucky to be in a hospital that had a center for integrative medicine. Wow. So, yeah, it makes all the difference. So where are you in the journey to treatment now? You've gotten your diagnosis. We're now three years down the line, you mentioned. So have you been undergoing chemo and radiation? What treatment path have you taken aside from the mindfulness and hypnosis techniques that you've been using to manage your pain and stress levels? Um, So I'm actually just a year and a half. Um, A year and a half. Okay. And um, what the modalities that have helped me the most, aside from medita- meditation, are actually uh, Reiki and healing touch. Mm. Um, there is a, a program in, in, in my area um, of healing touch volunteers that uh, are working with cancer patients. Mm. You do and, hear about Reiki being used among cancer patients, which is wonderful. Yes, and um, a friend of mine had cancer a few years before me, and she told me that was the most helpful modality, and uh, she gave me the name of that organization, and uh, I tried, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm very sensitive to energy, um, mm. anyway, acupuncture and being a meditator, it just... It affects resonates. you. Yeah. very and- strong. What about any like traditional Western techniques? Like, have you just undertaken more holistic methods to heal or are you also using, you know, um, traditional Western hospital yeah, visits? And I got, you know, I got my treatment and I'm on, um, on, on maintenance uh, drugs that I'm taking every day. So I'm taking all the... Yeah, so you're combining well, everything. Okay, but I'm, I, I'm adding things that are helping me. Absolutely. Heal, you know? I felt yeah. that cancer treatment was uh, very brutal. And yeah. um, I wrote an article that was actually published in, in a medical journal um, on, on my treatment. And it, it really f- was hard for my mind to accept that this was treatment. Mm. It really felt like torture. <laughs> well, because many cancer treatments make patients so sick as well. And so you have to live through being sick to feel better, which is, of course, very confusing, I imagine. Yeah, there is 
certainly some of that, but also the way it's administered and everything. <laughs> yeah, and we'll link to that article on the website page as well so that everyone tuning in can can go to those resources and read what you wrote about because this is one of the articles that really made your blog quite popular and made people find you as an advocate in the cancer space, right? Uh, a couple. This one was um, um, more helped medical providers uh, okay. know about my blog. Mm. Uh, it was published in the Journal of Patient Experience and actually was downloaded more than a thousand times and it's mm-hmm. one of the highest scoring uh, articles in the paper. So that had kind of really expanded, yes. Mm. So did you have to give up the work that you were doing in order to undertake maintenance and treatment for cancer? How have you... Oh, yes, absolutely. Because yeah. I'm, um, I'm a single person living alone. Mm. And um, it's just incredibly time-consuming to get the diagnosis when you don't have a caregiver. So, you know, very often you hear about how caregivers are just completely drawn (laughs) and, you know, overworked by taking care of someone with cancer. So imagine when you don't have that and the cancer patient have to play that role. Mm. Um, It was more than a full-time job. Um, Spent all my morning on the phone talking to the hospital and talking to insurance companies to manage all the different things, all the afternoons in medical appointments. Mm. And 6 p.m. I was dead in bed. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. We we have this conversation a lot on the show, you know, where the, the recognition that pursuing healthcare in this country is a full-time job. So, you know, that you're someone who like, we know, I mean, I think there are statistics about cancer in particular that like your average patient diagnosed with cancer is going to spend all of their savings in, you know, one to two years because it's that expensive to, to find and get care as well as to treat cancer. And I, I just, I wonder how, how patients are expected to continue with those kinds of pressures and how you've managed to to make oh, it's it work. very stressful for every patient. Yeah, that's where the mindfulness helps, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and you really hear that um, the majority of patients, um, you know, the exceptions of people that are very wealthy, but uh, the majority of patients, you know, are really affected financially uh, mm-hmm. by getting a cancer diagnosis. And so in addition to managing everything, you get a diagnosis and you have to apply for financial assistance and look at all the different programs and run GoFundMe campaigns and Mm. it's just exhausting. So you had to do all of that to to get your treatment. That's amazing. So you, you managed to make that happen. Did you, I mean, you mentioned that you were your own advocate. Were you able to turn to any friends or family at all along the way to, uh, to lean on, to get support from? Yes. Yeah, so I've I have a lot of um, I guess a lot of degrees and a lot of degrees in engineering, and they've come very handy um, mm. with my cancer journey to do research myself mm. on a lot of different things. Um, one thing that has been extremely useful, and that was just godsend, like completely unexpected is um, when I shared uh, my diagnosis um, uh, with friends on, on Caring Bridge, um, a friend of mine I hadn't seen in, in 20 years uh, sent me an email and said um, that he was a, a twice cancer survivor. I knew he had cancer once, but I didn't know he had it the second time. And that um, he had found it very useful to um, do some research and actually use the the National Cancer Institute uh, guideline uh, book. He created an account and he said, you know, uh, so I have access to this tool that typically doctors are using to help Mm. decide what your diagnosis should be. Mm. And if you want, I can help you look at it. And, you know, it's like, wow, sure. (laughs) He showed up at my house the next day 
Wow. Um, and, and we went on, on, on the internet. We downloaded the, the breast cancer uh, NCI guide, mm. and it was a 200 thick pages document wow. written in languages that I just could not understand. But thank <laughs> God he had gone through this many times. The one thing that was a surprise was difficult was that he, um, you know, every cancer has a different language, basically, mm. <laughs> the terms and, and all of those things. So we read my pathology report, but it's not like he could tell me what it is because right. he had a different type of cancer. So we had to struggle with that and understand it. But eventually we were able to um, use that incredible tool that allowed us to build a kind of a decision tree of all the different variables in my pathology report. Gee, you really do sound like an engineer right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's really great. This is really, because I would never have thought to do something like that. Of course, you know, you look up information, but to really build for yourself a treatment and diagnosis guide is is so clever. Yes. Mm. Uh, And uh, I'm glad my friend helped because yes, I do have a background in engineering, but uh, you know, I think it was a few days before I got diagnosed. And so just like, I would have been too overwhelmed to try to tackle sure. this on my own. Yeah. So, um, so that was really useful because at the end we printed what should be my treatment. Mm. And, um, he said, Oh, you know, bring a copy to your medical oncologist visit. And I was like, that's smart. I do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, then I show up to the visit and they know you mean business. <laughs> <laughs> No, first I didn't show anything. I waited for him to tell me what I should do, and I listened very politely. Mm-hmm. And then I took out my slides, kind of like summary slide at the end, and I looked and I said, yes, it sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't that go to show how, as a patient, it's in our hands to do our own research and not necessarily accept everything that practitioners are telling us is the right pathway. You really have to do the research and decide for yourself what's going to work for you, which obviously you did. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that made me one more comfortable with the treatment I had to do, but also uh, because of that research, I was able to ask questions. Like what I really was doing is I was trying to validate that that tree that I had built was right. And so that made me really understand uh, and so it took out the whole uncertainty and panic about treatment that every cancer pa- patient goes through. Um, and um, my friend has told me that he has helped a few people uh, do the same thing. And uh, in- he needs to start a business. <laughs> I actually told him I should start. A- I should build an interface to do that for patients. Yeah. Um, it's just amazing to me as well that like you get diagnosed with breast cancer and you're not given the, all of the materials that would lead you down this, this treatment tree, as you've described it, you know, um, which gave you structure, right? Because you knew how to research, but your average person doesn't necessarily know what sources are trustworthy, you know, and that you had to compile all that information for yourself and it wasn't readily available to you is pretty shocking for a disease that we know a lot about and we talk about a lot and is well-funded in a lot of ways. It it would have been practically impossible to to go and and do that. Um, The... Mm. They actually, I went and looked afterwards and I found that they actually have created a guide for patients, which no patient knows about. (laughs) (laughs) So we need some marketing money behind that. Yep. (laughs) And You know, the doctors are not talking about. Yeah. Um, But it's still so confusing and it doesn't have the logic of the tool. Mm. So it's kind of still too fuzzy to me. Yeah. Um, So I don't think that their patient guide is really useful it's still too you know I can understand it but I I think it would just be too confusing well it's interesting too because you would think that there would be a sensitivity to the fact that like everyone thinks and processes information differently as well you know like a respect of neurodiversity in that sense that like the way that you understand the structure or language of something (laughs) 
going to be very different from the way that I might, you know, and like some people are more visual and some are more auditory. You know, the health system is really backward for those things. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into that for sure. (laughs) Um, So why don't we just, can you talk us through what a typical day is like for you as you're managing the day-to-day symptoms um, that your treatment is, is bringing up for you? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, for several years, my day-to-day was just dealing with my illness. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to make some time to regain my life and uh, rebuild my income. So sure. I wake up in the morning and first thing I do is I meditate, mm. no matter what, for 30 minutes. Mm. And then I have my breakfast. Um then I write for a couple hours. I'm actually uh, writing a book. Wonderful. Yes, I'm writing a book on, on my cancer journey, but not so much as a memoir, more to really help make uh, cancer less um, opaque and mm. uh, invisible to caregivers so that um, care can be improved. Yeah. So it's um, geared more toward caregivers than, and, and practitioners in that sense than to patients. You know, what I have found surprising and I didn't help is I think that, you know, my blog is really heavily read by patients Mm. and the emails that I'm getting from patients is that um, I'm able to put words to experiences that they couldn't really articulate and that's very helpful to them. Mm. So I I think the audience would be, would be both. So I'm working on my second draft now. and uh, So you write for a few hours then? Okay. Yep. Yes, I write for a few hours and um, I answer some emails and I always cook, um, cook a nice lunch for myself. It's pretty much my, my only meal and I have so many dietary restrictions that uh, every time I go and eat at a restaurant or a friend's house, I get sick. So yeah. That's tough. Um, is that a result of, <laughs> is that just a preventive measure or is it like a result of treatments that you've undergone that, that the dietary restrictions have become more clear to you as well? Um, some things where it started really with my migraines. Mm. So there are so many foods that are triggering migraines that um, I took out of my, um, my plan. Mm. and. Um, and then I think I've just, you know, I listened to your, to your interview when you were kind of sharing the same, the same things is that, mm-hmm. you know, you get so much more tuned to what works for you and what doesn't when you really pay attention Yeah, that um, I've had a, a lot of um, PI issues related to treatment and, um, you know, so I'm learning what works and what doesn't. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So you cook yourself good food that you know you can eat. Yes, and then I, I I work for a couple hours, and then I take a walk mm. uh, every day, uh, shorter or longer. But um, I really walking is very important to me. Mm. Uh, and um, by seven p.m., I'm dead, and I'm actually going to bed. Yeah, it sounds like in a way, this diagnosis and the way it's changed your life has helped you find balance in your day to day that, you know, you're doing a few hours of work here, cooking some good food, going outside in nature and having a walk. You know, these are things that like people are encouraged to do every day, but when they work the nine to five grind and, you know, various other things crop up in life, it's very hard to access these pathways. And it sounds like you've been able to do that. Um, since I don't know for how long that's kind of like a problem is that it's, um, I found a way to function mm. and be able to be well, but I don't have enough hours to, yeah. uh, to work. So I'm going to have to change this balance. I'm trying to train myself mm. slowly by slowly uh, to get there. Yeah, absolutely. So you'd mentioned about how you, it took a while to get doctors to believe you. Can you recall any specific experiences where you were forced to justify the fact that you had something going on when people wouldn't believe you, when doctors wouldn't believe you? Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, 
I had some instances that um, I'm writing about in my book that mm. would have, um, you know, made me concerned that my cancer would actually not have been discovered um, if I hadn't uh, really insisted. Mm. I had a biopsy where I was completely butchered and uh, I was, and it was actually not successful because they didn't get to the area that they needed to go. Mm. Um, so I was really butchered for no reason. Yeah, that's really, oof. and I had terrible, um, post, uh, surgery bleeding and just awful. Yeah. I think for a lot of listeners who are tuning in, it's like sometimes with these biopsies, you know, it's not necessarily like a lump on the top of your breast. Sometimes these are very deep. And in order to actually get to these areas, as you're saying, it's not an easy task um, and you need very skilled surgeons to be able to do that. And it sounds like in that particular case, you had people doing it who didn't do the job correctly, but um, these can be so invasive just to get a diagnosis, which in and of itself is frightening enough. And then you wait days for the diagnosis too. And the anxiety is very difficult to handle. Yes. So if you can imagine that I had 20 of those, which um, it's very rare actually. Um, even according to doctors to have gone through so much. So it's really, really traumatic. People can't imagine how there is a cumulative effect. You Mm -hmm. know, every three months I had a biopsy, a major biopsy. Um, And so uh, I'm just traumatized, like I have PTSD now. Yeah, of course you do. Oh, and this is where... There, there may be a mental health aspect. Like we might have anxiety or depression before we even get diagnosed with these additional invisible and chronic illnesses. But often the medical experience creates even more trauma because there's greater anxiety and, and greater sadness associated with the procedures involved in getting a diagnosis, let alone the diagnosis itself, followed by treatments which can range in severity, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so... That's uh, that's why I'm writing my book and actually um, shared it with a, the, a draft with a friend who um, who is an oncologist and was just like, "Wow, I'm learning so much. Mm. Uh, those things are really important to to be told." Uh, it seems also that, like but, in in the world in which in your orbit, you know, among doctors and other cancer patients, that perhaps the patient voice isn't being given enough weight in the medical community. Would you agree? <laughs> I think it's um, it's true for all illnesses, but mm-hmm. uh, for cancer, definitely. Um, this is why I'm writing my blog and I'm writing this book. And, mm-hmm. and being an advocate um, is that I'm discovering that cancer is really an illness that's completely misunderstood uh, at the human level. And mm-hmm. people can see maybe... Um, I don't know, 20% of the suffering of the cancer patient. And there is 80% that's really unseen. And, Mm. you know, all the treatment and everything that is done is created by people that never had cancer. So they are only observing that 20% and and creating treatment for that 20% and have no idea of what Mm. cancer patients are going through. Mm. And, you know, I see... I mean, I'm thrilled that so much money is put on finding cures for cancers, for cancer. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, putting money into improving the cancer experience today would make a huge difference. Mm. Um, what I does think- that look like for you specifically in terms of putting money into improving the cancer experience today? Would that be improving access, improving you know, the quality of the hospitals or the practitioner's bedside manner? What does that mean specifically to you? Um, so I describe some of this in, in, in my paper. I think it's really understanding the patient experience. You know, I think hospitals have like departments that are focused on patient experience, but in my mind, they're really paying lip service to what they are doing. Um, so, you know, I, I teach an innovation workshop I was teaching that before I I, um, I got my cancer diagnosis, and one of the image um, that 
that a participant gave, which was really wonderful, was saying, you know, you always say, put yourself into the shoes of someone else, right? But I think what hospitals and medical providers are doing is they are granted putting them, their, their, themselves into the shoes of the patient to try to understand, mm-hmm. but they're not removing their shoes. Right. And so they have- so There's a, still a barrier. Completely distorted view of what the patient's experience is. Yeah. And um, so I think this would make a very big difference. And that sounds like that's going to involve a greater understanding of empathy and compassion in the medical system, right? For, for doctors to really see patients more fully. Yes. But, you know, interestingly enough, everybody is talking about doctors and nurses and um, they are actually empathetic doctors and nurses. You know, I went through many doctors that I have fired and now I have a stellar team of, of oncologists and mm-hmm. uh, they are skilled and empathetic. Um, mm-hmm. It took a lot of work to find them and, uh, and strengths to insist on changing doctors. But... Um, I find that the biggest problem is actually not from doctors. I think that training doctors to be empathetic is only solving a very small portion of the, of the puzzle. The problem is really the administration side and the processes that they are creating. And is that a, is that a problem that's caused by the health insurance industry? No, I don't believe so. Hmm. I think so it's it, very poor and, you know, the yeah, very poor understanding of, of, of the patient experience and, and processes that are ridiculous. I mean, you shouldn't have to be on the phone for two hours as a cancer patient to just make your follow-up appointments every day. Mm, Absolutely. I could not agree more. And it's not just cancer patients who have to do that, but the fact that people who are already dealing with chronic illness have to spend so much time and energy doing, making phone calls is it's the most frustrating thing. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat-sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Yeah. So this is an issue not only with your healthcare providers, but also with perhaps the larger hospitals in which they operate and, um, you know, whether it's front desk or back of house who are faxing various reports and and processing lab work, streamlining all of that for patients would make things a lot more approachable, it sounds like. Yes. I think it's, you know, really looking at um, what it's like to everything, to Mm -hmm. make a call, to check in, to uh, get into the treatment area, to receive treatment, to, to leave the treatment area, to mm-hmm. make a follow-up call, um, to be receiving treatment. Um, you know, the things that people say and do, it's just, you know, redesigning the rooms, you know. I wrote this in my, in my paper, like, you know, the radiation room looked like a torture museum. It's mm-hmm. just kind of like ridiculous. Which already puts you in a certain frame of mind. Absolutely. I walk in and it's just like, this looks like a morgue. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of sterility associated with the design of a lot of these spaces, of course, for hygienic purposes, but also we need to be keeping in mind the fact that this has a knock-on effect mentally. Yeah. It's not just hygienic. It's kind of like, you know, like when you get radiation, you have to put, um, you're in a mold. Um, Yeah. And so they have all the molds like lined up and the entry. What for? So that it's easier access for them. Yeah. It's just like, you know, you have to think differently. Mm, I think that's very true. Yeah. So design is a huge factor here and, and understanding yeah. the energy of an environment as well. Absolutely. 
Mm. So we know that there are ways in which the health system isn't working. Are there ways in which it has worked for you or that you could see it have maybe working, have been working better in another, like, cause you're French, right? So do you think if you'd been in France for this treatment, it would have been more or less difficult? Is there a, any part of the experience that, that was positive here? I mean, certainly if I was in France, I wouldn't have any financial problems because it yeah. would be 100% covered. Um, I, I think what, uh, what I would say that is positive is after struggling and being a cancer patient for must be five or six years now since mm. I started to do all of those things. Um, I know a lot of people now in the, in the cancer center. And so I was able to really uh, handpick a stellar team of doctors, which mm. many people are very envious of. Um, so when you have the right doctors, um, you know, things can be a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So here you were able to have your choice of doctors, which is good. But that, as you've mentioned, that also takes a lot of strength and obviously research and a faith in your ability to um, discern what's good and bad for you, which you have because you were able to do research in a way that you knew was accurate, right? Yeah. I mean, there was both the, you know, people are thinking a lot about kind of like the technical research Mm. of kind of like, you know, how skilled the doctor is and reputation and all of this. But um, I find that when you're dealing with um, rare or invisible chronic illness or cancer, um, the it's more than bedside manners, but there is something that's more intangible. And I have a sense uh, for knowing you know, who are the good people I want in my life and who are the people like I, yeah. I don't want. And, you know, so I, I've, uh, I've had some oncologists that were really good, but, you know, the, the way they were dismissive or treating me, that, you know, it just, mm. you know, didn't work. And it was very difficult to ask to change oncologists in the same hospital. You know, it's just like... It can be awkward. <laughs> is they say no they refuse it mm, it's just plain no huh. you know it's a lot easier to just go to a different hospital and take someone else mm. so um so it i had to struggle yeah absolutely so what about representation when it comes to cancer we know that this is a fairly well-funded um disease across the board um but do you think that the way in which cancer is represented in the media is is helpful or perhaps detrimental from a cancer patient perspective? Yes, I can answer this question uh, around two different angles. Mm. Um, the first angle, which I think is uh, very detrimental, is that the media and uh, books are... Uh, painting this image of cancer uh, or cancer patient as kind of like, it's either like this heroic or catastrophic battle that has to be like won or lost. Mm. And uh, that puts a lot of pressure on cancer patients. Mm. So, you know, you are a cancer patient and you're not allowed to say I'm tired to look bad, you know, people are always like, you know, yeah, positive, go do this. You have to be the battle. And then, you know, there are many people that have incurable cancer. How is that supposed to make them feel? They are fighting just as hard as I am fighting. Mm. You know, if they are dying, it's not because they are not fighting harder. Yeah. Um, So this whole, this whole thing, uh, you know, around being a warrior and, and heroes, you know, uh, is putting too much pressure on, on, on cancer patients. But also it's kind of like focusing just on cancer being a diagnosis and an outcome, <laughs> you know, mm. you're dead or you're alive. But nothing about the process. Nothing about the process and nothing about the, the long-term side effects, you know, cross, 
cancer is a chronic illness. Well, that's what I was just going to ask you, because you'd mentioned about us changing our perspective, patients and caregivers and practitioners alike, on what cancer is. And it sounds like what you're getting at is that cancer is a chronic illness, as you said, rather than an illness you beat the one time, you're going to spend the rest of your life making sure you don't get it again or managing the symptoms day to day, right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I didn't get that impression when I got my cancer diagnosis and treatment. It was basically, okay, so you're going to do that and you're going to be fine, you know, and, um, you know, okay, this is your last treatment, you know, goodbye. And, and, you know, then just everything breaks. (laughs) Right. And, um, and it sounds like there needs to be that kind of support in terms of representation, but also in terms of what's available through the healthcare system or through various foundations that, um, have been built to support cancer patients, but there has to be that kind of network where people can commune over the fact that there is a process at play here rather than, as you say, the diagnosis, the treatment, the end there's so much more beyond that. And what's the life of a cancer patient after all of this? Yes. And, you know, uh, for credits, there are programs on, on supportive cares that, uh, you know, are starting and I'm, I'm uh, lucky enough to have access to, to that here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, it's done mainly outside of the hospital. Uh, and um, you and know, wouldn't it be great if it were integrated in your care plan? <laughs> I mean, the thing is, as a cancer patient, all your friends and family assume that you're fine Mm. because, you know, your hair has grown back. Your medical people are assuming that you're fine. So, yes, you may have some supportive care program that not everybody has access to, by the way. I'm very lucky Mm. I speak to so many people that don't have access to that. Um, And, but it's, it's not really part of your whole you know, medical pro- progression or, you know, you, you just, as a cancer patient, you're really not aware that you're going to be spending the rest of your life having so many problems, mm. so many surgeries just to manage the side effects and all of those things. It's, it's, it's really difficult. It sounds like more than anything, there needs emotional support. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, it sounds like more than anything, there needs to be immediate mental health care and support groups or networks where you can share with others who are going through what you're going through more about the process rather than about the before and after, but more about the reality of now. Yes, the reality. Um, mm. Because it's really, it's really impossible to, um, to talk to anyone who doesn't have cancer and have it be... Um, having your experience be, be understood. Mm. Um, and, um, so cancer patients are on top of all the medical problems are suffering from emotional devastation and emotional isolation as a result of not being able to have conversations. And it's very different from being lonely. You may have friends and family, but you know, if you can't talk to them about your suffering, uh, you're, you're separated. Mm. Uh, Do you think that's because there's something like we hear the big C, right? you know, like cancer is a big word. It carries a lot of weight with it. Do you think it's because people who don't have cancer, they hear that word and they think, you know, this is a big thing. We've got to sort of handle you with kid gloves. We have to be gentle with you or can't talk about it unless they say, you know, do you think people are too careful as well who are outside that sphere? Yeah, there are a few reasons. Some people um, are just too scared and uncomfortable because it reminds them of their own mortality and they disappear. So as a cancer patient, you lose a lot of your friends with a cancer diagnosis. Uh, Some people are staying to their credit, but, you know, they are very uncomfortable, uh, like, uh, like you're describing. So conversations with a cancer patient are just very difficult, both for the cancer patient and the other person. Um, I'm actually working on a short video with a doctor mm. on this that I will let you know when it's out. Yeah, please. Um, are very, are very, um, are very difficult, and you know, people are often very um, defensive if you tell them 
that they didn't say something or they said something that hurt you. So there is really no, no way to really bridge the gap. And I'm finding a way to bridge it through my blog, which I think, which is why people are, you know, so interested in what I'm writing. Um, Do you think that's also because in a way when communicating with, sorry to cut in here, but you know, when communicating with those who are still around you, who don't have cancer, so don't understand it from the patient perspective, do you think that sometimes like sharing an article, instead of saying, this is how I feel, sharing an article from a third party makes it easier from an ego perspective for the person receiving that article to sort of take that information on rather than it being a personal attack or uh, this is what I need from you or whatever that... Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I wrote a post that was how to comfort a cancer patient. Mm. And so cancer patients were like, oh, I'm going to send that to my brother, my this and that, my uncle, and, you know, all excited. Yeah. Because as you said, it's, it's all the things they're wanting to say, but, you know, it's easier to hear that from someone else. Um, and as a cancer patient, it seems to me that, like, there's such a huge excision of ego, right? You know, you get a cancer diagnosis and you are almost at once at the will of the medical system, you know, and you have to fight to survive on a certain level. But from the perspective of those around you, their egos still exist. And in order for us all to commune more effectively, we need to remove ego from all of those conversations, which is why the third party information is a way to bridge that gap, as you say. Yes, that's um, that's a very um, interesting thing to say. I could have a, a whole hour discussion on, on ego and <laughs> I know because <laughs> well, you're a meditator, so you know how to separate from it, you know. But it's it's very that's interesting because it comes up in these conversations. Yeah, I mean, one thing that you mentioned about you know losing the ego is um, there is something very strange that um, I'm trying to articulate in my book. Um, about going through cancer treatment and getting, you know, um, basically getting cells killed on your body while you're alive that um, was really disoriented and made me, made me and many people completely lose our sense of identity. That's very well articulated. I don't think you're struggling to articulate it at all. I think that makes a lot of sense. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a, it's the difference, isn't it, between like immunotherapy, which is targeted cell therapy, and something like chemo or radiation, which literally is built to kill everything in its path, right? That that the treatments that we're using for cancer quite commonly are ones that create a lot more damage on the way to removing yeah, what the offender so is. Absolutely. And there is definitely the, the, the physical damage to adjacent areas yeah. where, the, where the treatment was given, but also the, the emotional damage. I mean, I just never had been in my entire life. It's kind of like, you know, I was waking up, you know, I look like a middle-aged woman, but... I feel like a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what I want to do with my life. It's just like all those values and the sense of who I was and what I wanted to do, and it was gone. Mm. Do you think that's because of the way that we understand cancer, like the big picture, when someone says, again, like the big C? Or do you think that's also partial, like that's also just the, the way in which cancer treatment cancer patients are treated definitely the treatment i mean for me it was just day and night from starting to get the treatment and finishing the treatment aggressive just like okay i was not sylvie anymore and Mm. i go to support groups and everybody's the same you know yeah but it's got to be such a finding the new self because the old self doesn't exist anymore it's interesting i mean there's such a correlation there to stop you, but everybody is expecting the old self to come back, right? Sure. So they want the they want back the old Sylvie, you know. Mm-hmm. But so not- you've got to go through that transformation and grieving process, but they're going to need to do it as well. Yes, but 
for that, I need to get to a point where I know who I am, right? Right. Which otherwise, is... we can't communicate. And that's a whole nother process in and of that's itself. That's a whole new thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can have many conversations. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I mean, it's just fascinating to me because it opens up such worlds of discussion about selfhood, about identity, you know. And so much of what we talk about in this world of chronic illness is exactly that. At what point do I take on the identity of someone living with a disability? Is this all of who I am or is it a part of who I am, you know? And for those of us who have made this our work, it's an even bigger part of who we are because it's what we're talking about oh, and writing know. about every day, <laughs> yes. you know? It's like when I'm not at the, like you, when I'm not at the cancer center, I'm writing about cancer or I'm like starting a business around cancer and it's just yeah. my, whole, my whole life is cancer. And when I'm not doing the podcast, I'm at the doctor's office, you know, it's yes. like we live in these worlds. Yes. But I totally agree with you because it changes fundamentally who you are to live with a chronic illness. But I, I imagine that going through something where the treatment, as you say, is so even more aggressive. Yeah. That's got to be even more damaging and heartbreaking completely. to go through. Yeah. Just how do you, so how do you manage it? How are you still here? Are you still figuring out who Sylvie is? Um, yes, I'm starting to to get a good idea. Mm. Uh, I uh, I attended um, uh, like a eight weeks survivorship program, and um, I'm started another one a couple weeks ago. Um, mm. I've done a lot of meditation, um, reading, and walks, and um, you know, I'm actually at a point where I'm. I'm finding this new Sylvie, which uh, is actually really exciting. Um, I, mm. I, I attended a, a workshop for cancer. Pa- it's a writing group for cancer patients. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, while I was uh, going through treatment mm. and that really changed my life mm. because I, I had always been a writer. I've been, blogger for 10 years I used to write for the Huffington Post and um so you know I love to write and I write well and it's familiar territory yes but when I went into that class a completely completely different voice came out of me Mm. you know it's like I was writing and I was reading this and it's like where is this coming from Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of like new identity that just was like coming out on, 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 on paper and a lot more vulnerable, a lot more heartbroken, a lot more human, compassionate, empathetic, yeah. sad, despaired, mm-hmm. in awe, <laughs> you know, a lot That's more. That's the thing, like the sadness comes with awe. Like these yeah. things are, there's always that dichotomy. Yes, yes. And, you know, that's the voice that came out on, on paper. And that's, the, that's what, why people encourage me to, um, to write my blog uh, and kind of, you know, start a new blog that was more like uh, around my cancer experience and, and now writing a book that's a lot more vulnerable than I ever thought I would ever write in my life. Mm. <laughs> and it's interesting because when, when others go through this kind of transformation, when your average person who's not living with chronic illness seeks transformation on that level, some may isolate, some may seek support groups, you know, and, and go through various holistic healing methods. But for you, it's like, and for, for cancer patients, it seems like, you know, it's that the metaphor of the butterfly, you know, this caterpillar becomes a chrysalis, reborn a butterfly. And yet in your cocoon, it's not just you and it's not safe. There's all of this treatment, all this aggressiveness, all these people who are coming in and out. And it's not as personal in that way. So it's harder to figure out what that butterfly is going to be on its way out. Yes, it's a uh, it's a struggle that takes that takes years. Yeah, and um, I've um, you know through my mindfulness meditation practice, um, and um, I've also I do a lot of very weird things. Also attended um, death meditation retreats mm. um, to really face my mortality. Um, but so that has prompted a lot of reflection and um, I'm, I'm 
I'm coming out a lot wiser and um yeah. I think that voice uh, that's vulnerable and sad and scared, but also in awe, um, that is the voice of wisdom in many ways, isn't it? Which is, comes from experience. That's uh, nicely said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here reflecting you. I'm just acting as a mirror. So, oh my God, Lauren, we're on the same wavelength. <laughs> I know, but it's just so wonderful to get this perspective because I think there's a poetry to the way that you you describe uh, what you're experiencing and, and you're painting the picture for others in a way that has they're obviously responding to because it's visceral, it's vulnerable, yes. and it's real. And I think, you know that kind of reality is hard to find in this social media post-truth world, right? But it's also that being that raw about things, um, that's really tough to work through personally as well as to offer it up to others. And I think, you know, it's not just cancer patients who are lucky to have your writing. It's it's all of us, you know, that that we can reflect on the experiences that you're sharing with us um, and understand transformation and chronic illness in a whole new light, which obviously needs to happen. You know, if, if we've learned anything from this discussion, it's that things need to change for everyone. Right. And that the patient needs to be the one at the head of that charge. Yes. The reason mm-hmm. being is um, the understanding of the cancer or or another illness, you know, experience cannot come from someone who never had that illness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I like to end my interviews with a couple of top three lists, which seem so overly simplified now after this very (laughs) philosophical discussion. But I wonder if there's a way for you to boil down for people who are tuning in and, you know, Maybe we've gotten too heady for them. (laughs) Maybe we haven't. But I'm wondering if there's a way to boil down from all of this wealth of information, your top three tips for someone who suspects something is off, you know, who is like, like you were and like, I'm quite sure that there's something going on. I may not know what it is, but I have to find out. Or perhaps someone who's already got that diagnosis and has begun undergoing treatment. What would you recommend for these people? Top three tips. It's a tall order, I know. Yeah, I think the first one for me would be to learn to fight for yourself. And if you really can't find someone to fight for you, Mm. um, because you're going to be overrun. Um, You know, there are many, um, you know, I could have not had a diagnosis if I didn't insist. Yeah. Um, I know people that uh, had... Um, that were prescribed tra- treatments that were um, really overly aggressive and, and, and there were new, newer, much better treatment that, that were available, but the doctors didn't you know, prescribe them. Um, so it's very important to fight for yourself. Um, the second thing, which um, I think you you can relate or you may have mentioned (laughs) yourself in in your story is really asking for what you need because people have no idea. So true. Right. And, but we're not raised like that. So it's really cancer that taught me that, you know, if I'm just sitting here and waiting, it's not going to come. It's amazing because talking to you now, I'm like, I can't imagine you not asking for what you want and not telling people what you want, but it's, part of that transformation, isn't it? I'm meeting the new Sylvie. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, and I think that's a very important message for everyone listening, but especially for for any marginalized person who's listening, be that women, you know, or, or anyone else in this grand sphere who's not a rich white man, right? Um, that, that asking for what you want and need is not only okay, but it's necessary. It's necessary to survive. Yeah. I mean, and not just, not just when it comes to chronic illness, but like in your whole life, that's a life lesson. It's, yeah, it actually, it, it has, um, 
uh, expanded in, in other areas of my life. Yeah. But suddenly when I look at my illness, I, I could not have made it if I had just been the old Sylvie that's just politely waiting for help to come and, and you know, people to, to offer the quote-unquote right thing. Mm. Um, that would not have worked. And then the third thing is <laughs> don't let others make you believe that you're not sick. Yeah, <laughs> so true. Uh, right. <laughs> you well, that, it's that, that classic trope of being told it's all in your head. Yes. Which is largely not true. 99.99% yeah. of the time. Yeah. Not true. Constantly like, you look great. You know, like people mm-hmm. that like look at you up and down and you're like, okay, I'm going to end with that one. Is yeah. like, I was seeing a friend and she said, you look great. And I was just at a difficult moment mm. and I was happy to see her. So I was smiling, you know, but I was, I told her, you know, I'm not feeling great. I'm, I'm really not feeling good. Mm. And then she looks at me closely and then she says, but your eyes look great. Eyes don't lie. Oh, and that's I a bit presumptuous. Like, totally. I don't even have the right to say that I'm not feeling great. Yeah. That was devastating. Well, that's, that's a real indication that she can't handle what you're going through, isn't it? Like she couldn't take it on. Yes. You Mm. know, this expectation that uh, cancer patients have to be constantly warriors. Yeah. That's, that is, I think that's a really fair point that like, that's not accurate. (laughs) It's not like you're, I mean, look, for someone who relates to military references, I'm sure the idea of going to battle makes a lot of sense, but for the rest of us, you know, it's not just one event, is it? It's, it's like constant diplomacy. It's more like the political, you know, side of things and getting things, getting a bill passed than it is about going to war. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, yes, there is a a part when during treatment, you have to be a fighter, Mm, you know, you have to wake up and go to treatment every day. But um, in a lifetime of being a cancer patient, you know, you can't be a fighter all the time. And, you know, and one thing that I, I used to be a professional ballerina um, mm. a time ago. And so I know all about working hard, going beyond the limits, you know. And, and no wonder you're so in touch with your body as well. Yeah, and fighting and, and, and you know, pushing your body, your body to do more than, than what it thought it could do. Um, but... This has actually, um, it has served me in my life, certainly, mm-hmm. but it has also uh, been a burden because, you know, yes, there is a part that you have to fight and, and not die, mm-hmm. but if you want to heal, you cannot heal by fighting. Healing comes from letting go. Oh my gosh, so well said. Okay, we'll stop here. <laughs> <laughs> I do have one more question. And I think you'll have fun with this one. This is the the last top three list is top three things that give you unbridled joy that you are unwilling to compromise on. They might be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities. What are the top three things in your life that you turn to when you need a little light in your life? Um walking in, in nature yeah and um the company of oak trees oh lovely you're like judy dent she loves her trees <laughs> it's yeah oh i just i just love oak trees i can totally identify with them i i wrote a poem on oak trees actually i've never been a poet but during my cancer journey this poem came i'd well, say i'd say you have a poetic soul for sure <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, because it's now published in a liter- literary review, but it's just my, it started from my friendship with the oak trees. So oak trees is, yeah, that's, they're my, my comfort, um, mm. you know, symbols or yeah. companion. Um, it's hard to believe that meditation can give you unbridled joy, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it does for me. Yeah. Well, it's part of that letting go. That's part of healing, isn't it? Yes, you know, when you, I discovered through meditation that I can be going through hell yeah. 
but I can have peace in any moment. Ah, that's beautiful. Yes. Mm, I love that. So that, that is very important. And then that's um, so much more than it gets better. It's so much deeper. (laughs) And then I really love having a good lunch with a good friend and Mm. love. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, nothing like it. This feels like we've had a good lunch. I've been I've been drinking my lunch while we've been chatting. So. <laughs> it feels like we we fit the bill there today. <laughs> it just feels like we've been talking in a cafe and I know. I, I've been thinking that the only thing missing is like a glass of biodynamic wine or something to complete <laughs> the picture. Well, Sylvie, is there anything else you'd like to add? I'd love you to, for you to tell listeners where they can find you and your work, of course. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, my website and my blog is my, uh, my first last name, sylvieleotin.com. Yes. And I assume you'll spell it out or you'll, you'll post it. It will be posted. It will be linked. Wonderful. And yeah. uh, I'm on social media, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, a little bit of Instagram, but not my favorite. <laughs> yeah, you're mostly, I think I've, I feel like I see you mostly on Twitter. That's like no, your mean. Twitter is a wonderful place for cancer patients. Mm, so that's very good advice there. Yes, I've tried them all. Very good. Well, Sylvie, this has been such a delight. I'm so glad to have had the time to, to speak with you and, and commune over cancer. Um, and I wish you continued healing and um, really look forward to seeing what work new Sylvie continues to, to give birth to in this world and, and look forward to reading more of what you have to offer us. Thank you so much, Lauren. It's yes. just such a pleasure to, to speak with you. You're, you were just born to do what you're doing. <laughs> it's, well, I think we both were. <laughs> Somehow we found our ways and we, we met each other. I know. There you go. It's beautiful. Thank you so Thank much, you. Sylvie. Okay. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.